All right, welcome back to our study all about the revelation of Jesus. We're going through the book of Revelation. We're looking at how Jesus is is revealed, how he's revealed uh, as John writes it down, and how he's going to be ultimately revealed uh, in the ages. Revelation is a look at Jesus that that is supposed to um, dazzle us and that our amazement and our delight and our confidence in Jesus and his great salvation just goes way up. This goes way up, and our joy goes up as well. My prayers this week, I don't know about yours, but my prayers this week were significantly impacted by, by last week. I actually listen to what I say sometimes, and, and I remember <clears throat> what I said. And as I was praying earlier this week, maybe Tuesday, Wednesday, I was realizing that my prayers were feeling extra powerful because the Jesus that I was picturing was more powerful. And I was picturing fire-eye Jesus, bright as the sun, glowing Jesus, as opposed to a much more human Jesus, more, maybe more the gospel's version of Jesus. And I was realizing as I'm praying that I'm, I'm sitting there praying to Jesus, my God, which I know, but when I was picturing a more glorified Jesus, it just seemed a lot more. And I was just like, oh, and my confidence, my delight, my joy in those prayers. And as I'm, as I'm, I'm appealing to this mighty one. And, and so, I don't know, I was impacted by this. I, I hope that, um, that you were impacted as well, maybe, or as you were thinking about what we talked about last week as we turned our eyes on Jesus last week and looked at Jesus as he is now. So that, that was last week, Revelation chapter 1. Now, a few quick things, maybe three, maybe four quick things before we dive in to um, Revelation chapter 2 when we start looking at the seven churches. Today, we're going to look at three of the seven, and next week, we're going to finish with the remaining, remaining four. But a few quick notes before we dive into this section. One of the things that we skipped last week and we didn't actually talk about was Revelation chapter 119. We were being uh, dazzled by the amazingness of Jesus, but there's this one verse that's kind of just straightforward and standard, and it, it reads like this, and most people view this as ba the basic structural outline of the whole book. And, and it's, it's simply this. John is being directed here, and he says, Therefore write what you have seen, what is... And what will take place after this? And most people point to that verse. That's the basic structure of the book. And it starts off, what you've seen. You've, you've seen Jesus, glorified Jesus, powerful Jesus. What is, as we look at these churches and, and what's going on, and then what will take place after this, the, the end time stuff and how Jesus is ultimately going to triumph over evil. So um, that's, just, that's just fun. That's free, 119, kind of basic structure of, of the whole book. The second thing that I want to note is that there are basically four main views, interpretive ways that people look at Revelation and the end times. So uh, I, I'm going to be talking about those four views, not today, but I'm going to be giving you an overview of all four of them, potentially on the 22nd of September. Now, that may move depending on what happens with Royston and when we have a launch Sunday for the Royston gathering. But currently it's scheduled for the 24th, uh, 22nd, sorry, of, of September, where I'm just going to go through and say, here's the four views and here's the right one. No, <clears throat> that's not what I'm going to do. I'm going to say, here's the four views, here's kind of where I'm at, but again, we're holding this all loosely. We're not, we're not fighting about this. The, the third thing that I want to note before we get going, now, and I, I'm, I'm telling you, get ready for the 22nd of September. 
it's going to be great. A lot more, a lot of teaching, and a lot of like, whoa, whoa, this is really interesting. Who would ever believe that? And then why doesn't everybody believe what you believe in, what you believe in? All this kind of stuff. It's going to be a fun day. Thirdly, I have three assumptions, no, two assumptions and one requirement. And I just want to keep that out there as we go through this study. My assumption is, is that we're not all thinking about Revelation from the same starting point. I don't know what your background is or what you've been taught or if you've even given this much thought, but there's a great chance based on the wide variety of backgrounds in our church that there is the widest variety of end times views in this church. So that's an assumption, and I say, praise God, this is great, this is great. The second assumption that I have is that every one of our end times uh, views is at some level inaccurate. I'm assuming that whatever I think, no matter how strongly I think it about some of these things, um, that there's going to be some inaccuracies, especially when I look at how, the, how God fulfills things in the New Testament versus how he, what he promised and what he spoke about in the Old Testament. And so I want us to just enter with a great humility as we go through these these. Uh, this book together about our own views it hasn't happened and so or or it has or hasn't I don't know Uh, we'll go through this but with with open hands and we're not going to fight about this and that's the requirement two assumption and a requirement the requirement is is we're not going to fight about these views this is not about division we are going to be actively opposed to division here in this room and in every coffee shop that we're talking about this this stuff in we are instead of fighting one another about who's right and who's wrong which we will find out in the end what instead we're going to fight for unity And we're going to fight for joy. And we're going to fight for remembering that the book of Revelation was not about dividing the church, but to bringing it together in glorious hope as it looks intently at the amazingness of Jesus and the the victory at the end of the age. So we're going to stay on that. It's meant to bring us together. And we're not going to allow division to get in here. Okay, so uh, those are, those are three previous uh, pre-notes there. Um, I guess getting back a little bit to clarify the reason why we're not going to talk about the four different views of Revelation yet. The main reason is, is because in this section of Revelation, there's pretty much unanimity, or, or it's pretty, it's pretty um, united about what's being understood in these particular chapters. Later on, it, the four views start to go into different, different directions, but right now, basically everybody views these chapters just about the same way, especially the chapters that we're looking at this week and next week, chapters two and three of, of the book of Revelation, which are about the seven churches of the apocalypse. apocalypse, apocalypse. Yeah, the seven churches uh, in, in the book of Revelation here. So <clears throat> the, there, there is one difference, and I'll just highlight it, but it's not necessarily connected to these views. Um, everybody agrees, as we're looking at these seven churches, that, that these letters were written to seven actual churches that were like they're described here in this book, that they're actual churches that are described like this. Everybody believes that throughout all the ages of the church from then until now and probably until the return of Jesus That throughout the world there's examples of all of these kinds of churches in every age Spread out through every age So we tend that there we, we can see different types of these churches Then there's one view which is on the screen here which not everybody uh, holds and some people do some people don't um, Probably in this room some people hold it some people don't personally 
it's interesting. I don't know if I actually hold this or not, but I wanted to put this on the screen. And the basic view is that each of these seven churches represents an era of the church age, that the, their characteristics of each of these churches are more predominant in each age. So even though, okay, it looks like there's, it's all cleanly set there along the way, but I want to remind you that in every age, all of the churches exist. But there's just a sense of like maybe primarily in each age. Again, you can hold that view. That's fine. It's it's a very uh, it's not a big issue. It's not necessarily something that I'm I'm going to be pushing or or teaching. I'm not even sure exactly what I think about it. So, but that, that's there. Anyway, so we're gonna. We're, as we go through our study today, we're going to be looking at these seven churches as real churches and these letters being written to them, and we're going to be assessing because at the end of every letter, we're going to see the Spirit saying, uh, the, the, the Spirit tells us to, the Spirit says, listen, uh, listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. And we're going to evaluate, we're going to self evaluate as individuals, as part of Jesus' church, and as a church as a whole. So another thing, as we, as we look at these churches, um, there's no perfect churches. Only Jesus is perfect. We just got to keep that in our minds, that no perfect churches. And so that's why there's this note on the screen. Every church needs to learn how to receive encouragement from Jesus and respond to the correction of Jesus. Now, depending on your temperament and your personality type, some of you are going to be really good at receiving encouragement from Jesus, and you're like, Jesus says, hey, you're doing a good job here, and you're like, I know. That's great. That's fantastic. Um, and then others of you, when you hear, some of, some of those people who are good at receiving the encouragement, then they hear the correction, they're like, yeah, but remember, I'm pretty good at this. Uh, others of you flip it around, and you're like, oh, you're pretty good at this, and you're like, uh. But, but, you know, this isn't so good. I know, I know. And you just, like, forget there's anything positive in your life. Well, as, as, as part of Jesus' church, we got to be good at receiving both the encouragements and the corrections. It can be really easy to be overly hard on ourselves or less concerned about the negative if there's some positive. Okay, so anyways, we're going we're gonna to learn how to do this together, and we're going to look th through that. I guess one last note before we dive into looking at the church in Ephesus is that all the structures, the structures of all the letters are pretty much the same. They have the same pieces of it. They, they follow the structure of a high king and, and his decrees to a, a nation, Cyrus. For example, in the Old Testament, he writes a letter to the nations and it follows this kind of basic structure. And the elements of that are here on the screen. There is the destination for the letter. In this case, write to the angel of the church in, you know, whatever. There's a description in this letter of Jesus from chapter 1, our high king Jesus. Now, it was interesting because in chapter 1, we looked at how amazing Jesus is and, and his, his fiery eyes and this sword coming out of his mouth. And we're, we're just dazzled by this mighty, mighty, eternal Jesus. But then we find out in chapter 2 that Jesus isn't just incredible and mighty, but actually that might is relevant to his church. And so he introduces himself with pieces that we saw in Revelation chapter 1 to see that that is really importantly connected to his interaction with his own people. So a description of Jesus from chapter 1. Then there's a description of the church that he's writing to, introduced by the words, you know, I know, I know. And then a call to repentance or faithfulness reinforced by a threat or a promise. 
and finally a promise to the victor, the one who overcomes. <clears throat> okay, we're ready for our first letter, to, to look at the letter to the church in Ephesus. Uh, now, I say that we're going to look at our first letter here because we're looking at them in the order that they show up in the Bible. Um, if, you wanna, if you're like, is there any significance beyond that to the order of these letters? Well, um, some would say they reflect the church age, uh, but it's definitely the order that a messenger would go, the, maybe the person carrying the letters would go if they were going from where John is writing this on the island of Patmos. The first city he would come to is Ephesus and then Smyrna, and then Pergamum. And so it, it follows the track of a, of a courier as well. Okay, anyways, Ephesus. Let's read, starting in Revelation chapter 2, uh, picking up in verse 1, the letter to Ephesus. Write to the angel of the church in Ephesus, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks among the seven gold lamps and says, I know your works your labor and your endurance and that you cannot tolerate evil. You've tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and you found them to be liars. You also possess endurance and have tolerated many things because of my name and have not grown weary. But I have this against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first. Otherwise, I will come to you. Oh, wait, no, backing up. You've, I got excited there. You've abandoned the love you had at first. Remember then how far you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. Otherwise, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet, you do have this. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Anyone has an ear? Anyone who has an ear should listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. I will give the victor the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in God's paradise. All right, so Revelation chapter 1, Jesus is the star holder, the lamps, among the lampstands, Jesus. And then there's this evaluation of the church. You know, I know your works and your, your, your labor, your endurance, your intolerance of evil, that you're testing people and you're discovering that that's a false teacher, that, that, that's not an apostle, that they're liars, and, and all that really good stuff. And, and that's pretty cool to read. I mean, if you've been reading the book of Acts recently, you remember Paul and how Paul was, was, was saying goodbye to the Ephesian leaders, the, the elders, and, and he's with tears, and he's, he's in anguish. He's like, I know Satan's agenda for your church. Satan's agenda is to bring in false teachers, wolves. And he's like, be on your guard, be alert. And, and, and he's just agonizing about knowing what the enemy is going to do. Well, apparently they listened to Paul. And they took it very seriously. And they have, for all these years, decades have, been go have gone by, maybe three decades, and, he is, and, and they're still extremely astute to false teaching. It's, it's pretty amazing. I'm pretty exciting. There's also um, praise for this great endurance for having tolerated so many rubbish things because they're following Jesus, just being treated poorly because of the name of Jesus. And they haven't, they haven't grown weary in all this time. But with that going on, Jesus has one thing against otherwise a great church. And it says they have abandoned the love they had at first. Okay. 
I have always read this to mean they have abandoned the love they have for Jesus. That's always been the way that, that I've, I've read this. Most historical commentators and songwriters, you know, they'll write about first love, first love. I can't even sing right now, but it's okay. I'm singing. And I'm, no. Uh, <laughs> um, so they, they, they would write about Jesus and, and being the, uh, our first love and how we've abandoned and we've missed our first love. Probably the, the, the reason they would grab onto that is because of the King James Version, which, which is translated, and this sounds like the king james version thou hast left thy first love that's how it's written uh, in the king james and that sounds like okay you've left your first love jesus but modern translations including the holmans including the esv including even the ones from the 70s like the niv and things like that they are translating it much more like you have abandoned the love you had at first which is a little bit less clear about what's going on here. Is that the love you used to have for Jesus but don't have anymore? Or is that, and as more and more commentators are, are arguing, the love you had for people? You've lost the love that you had for, for people. Now, it definitely could be Jesus, and, 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 and you could, they could be talking all about getting back to that love. You know, you've lost that love and feeling for Jesus, and, and going back to that. But, but here's why some people are thinking more and more that it's, it's about loving people. Because usually in the Bible, actually all over the Bible really, when God challenges his people that they don't love him anymore, he's calling them back, uh, he's, he's using imagery like idolatry or adultery or, or things like that, and he's, and he's calling them out on those kinds of images which don't appear in the letter to Ephesus. They appear in some of these other seven letters, but not in the letter of Ephesus. And, and they're excelling at so many great things, not tolerating evil, not going off on false gospels. They're, 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 they're purging them. They're, they're a church of, of liars. They're not following the false teaching of the Nicolaitans. They're hardworking. They're enduring. And, and some, though, are saying more and more that they've become so diligent and so guarded and so evaluative and so careful in their people carefulness when it comes to who's teaching and who's saying what they've stopped loving people because they've been so evaluating of people and so they they've lost that love of people that they have at first now jesus warns about this in matthew 24 and he, and he writes that, you know, the love of most, because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. But he who stands firm to the end will be saved. God's people, whether this is about people or Jesus, God's people need to be shrewd and alert when it comes to people, but not lose their love for people. We can't develop a critical spirit that, that, that quelches, uh, squelches our love for, for people. The challenge... Jesus gives these people who have lost their love seems a little bit odd if it's about him and about Jesus. It, it, when, if it was about Jesus and losing our love for Jesus, Jesus would be, come back to me with all of your heart. Remember, love me with all your heart and your soul and your mind and your strength. Love, love me. Um, but instead, it's more like get back to serving people. Get back to work loving people well. Now, I don't know. Again, like I said, I've always viewed this as, as about uh, losing that fire, that love for Jesus. But it could be, all, it could be 
about losing that fire and that love for people and, and be warned against that, to keep cultivating that. Uh, we, we at this church are, make both of these a big deal. Uh, we want your hearts to be alive and fresh in God. I, I want you to be moving closer and closer towards, towards Jesus in your heart, more and more in love with Him. And I, I want you to be excited and feel, feel fresh and alive and awakened, reawakened with God. Also, we want you to love people, to love God's people. Everyone who uh, walks in these doors to love the people in our city, no matter how imperfect they, they are. So the threat that Jesus gives is, get back to this place, or I'm going to remove your church. Uh, that sounds like a threat, unless you repent. But the reward is, if you love Jesus well, or if you love people well, whatever it is, you get to eat from the tree of life. You get eternity. You get eternity with God. Now, there's like 22, 21, 22 um, promises of God in these two chapters. It's the most condensed part of Scripture that lays out promises of God. Um, there's like, yeah, like I said, 21, 22 of them. These promises are all seen like at the later bit of Revelation near the end of the book <clears throat> um, fulfilled there. But the reward is if you, you love Jesus, you love people, eternity is waiting for you. Again, I'm not sure what the right question to ask is, but as we go through each of these seven churches, I want to ask us an evaluative question to, to see how we're doing in, in, in this aspect of the church. The, so I'll, but I'm going to ask two questions just because I don't know which one to actually ask. The first question I want to ask is, how is your love for Jesus? How is your love for Jesus? And the second how, how is your love for Jesus today? Are you feeling distant? Are you feeling dry? Are you feeling apathetic? Are you feeling, are you feeling disconnect? Want to move back towards that. We want to run after that. We want to see our hearts reawaken. Secondly, your love for imperfect people. Are you feeling critical of people? Are you feeling annoyed by people? Oh, people don't annoy me until I leave my flat, right? Uh, once I start seeing people, then, 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 I, then they're annoying. But like generally speaking, is, uh, <clears throat> how, do you, how is your love for imperfect people? Do you hear the call of Jesus? And does this tug on your heart? Hey, let's, let's work on the love for Jesus. Let's look, work on our love for people. A little bit too critical or a little bit too apathetic here. Listen to the voice and call of Jesus. That's a, the church in Ephesus. Secondly, Smyrna. Smyrna. Uh, and this is what we read of the church in Smyrna, starting in chapter 2, verse 8. Write to the angel of the churches in Smyrna, the first and the last, the one who was dead and came to life says, I know your affliction and poverty, yet you are rich. I know the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Don't be afraid of what you're about to suffer. Look, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison to test you, and you will have affliction for 10 days. Be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life. Anyone who has ear an ear should listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. The victor will never be harmed by the second death. Okay, so this is the 
this is one of two churches that isn't, uh, isn't reproved for anything specifically. Uh, the, the Revelation chapter 1, Jesus is the eternal one, the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the one who was dead and has come back to life. That Jesus, the, the conqueror of the grave, is the one that's speaking to this church. <clears throat> and, and basically, there's no reproof of this church because of their suffering is so extreme. Their suffering is so extreme. Jesus encouraged them, be faithful, hold on until you die. Keep believing in me until death don't worry i'm gonna put an end on it 10 days which we would like to think of as 10 days but 10 days isn't actually 10 days uh it's a little bit longer than 10 days but it's 10 days but it isn't you know what i mean that's how revelation works and so but there's an end i've put an end on it and for the meantime though be faithful until they put you to death wow this is a very persecuted church a very persecuted church. This is, this is not like us. This is not like our, our church here. Uh, but also this is a great example of, of looking at um, what is truly true and not just what we see. And there, there's several back and forth things between what is seen and what is truly true. For example, their eyes say that they are poor, but Jesus says they are rich. Their, their eyes say that they're being persecuted by Jewish people who have faithfully worshipped God throughout the centuries. But Jesus says that th they're not Jews. They're, they're part of a synagogue of Satan, that they're not Jews. Their eyes say that they're going to be tested and die and suffer, but Jesus says they're going to be crowned with life. And there's so much of look beyond what you see to what is truly true. Uh, again, we, 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 we care about the uh, churches like Smyrna in our generation. That's not us, but part of the money that has been a, that's gone out from this church. Um, every month we, we receive um, offerings, and we send part of that offering to the persecuted church around the world through Release International. We, we extremely care about our brothers and sisters who suffer around the world. Um, when, I, when I imagine what this persecution looks like and, and how I read it here in this letter, it reminds me of the Apostle Paul. Remember how Paul would go to cities and towns and it was the Jews who would to rile up the city against them. And sometimes he'd be stoned and left for dead or he'd be, he'd be beaten and imprisoned or riots would take place because the Jews had a lot of influence and power and wealth in these, in these communities often and they would stir up the, the, the nation, the city and town against Against, um, against the believers in Jesus. And I picture that same sort of thing happening with Smyrna, that it's the Jewish people that are going against Jesus' people. Now, a side note, for a few weeks from now, uh, notice the comments on the Jews. It says that they are Jew. they say they are Jews, but they are not. One of the great questions that we need to answer or we need to, we need to grapple with, I don't know if we can answer it. We'll see as we go through this. One of the great questions we have to grapple with in the book of Revelation is, is trying to figure out if when it talks about Israel and when it talks about Jewish, the, the Jewish people, is it talking about the genetic descendants of Abraham or the faith descendants of Abraham? 
That is a major interpretive question in this book. So much of the understanding of the end times hinges on that simple thing. Personally, I would love to believe that, it, that, that there is this great future uh, finale with genetic descendants of Abraham. I think it would make an incredible story arc in the Bible. Uh, it, would just, it would just wrap it up. And, and I love this idea of, of at the end of the age... You, Jewish people, uh, genetically Jewish people, uh, uh, this flowing out just like how we're going to read in the book of Revelation. I think Paul is a big fan of that as well. But here, in this chapter, in chapter 2, we'll see what happens as we go through the book. It's very tenuous to make that kind of a claim. Because here we see, okay, whoa, they say they're Jews, but they're not. And it's this idea that not the Jewish people aren't necessarily the, those who are the genetic descendants, but those who are about faith. Now, again, we'll study this and we'll see how, we'll track how this goes, but that's a major question that we're going to have to deal with as we go through this book. Okay, uh, I want it to be genetic, but we have to stand with the Bible in this. All right, super fun. <clears throat> because this is a persecuted church, please see that Jesus is among the church. He's, he's among the church, even, even though there's so much suffering and prison and, and there's, there's, there's uh, people being put to death and all that kind of stuff. I bet oftentimes when you find yourself in, in a season of life where you're not enjoying it, maybe where there's suffering or things aren't going, out, go, going well and you're, you're, you're angry and all that kind of stuff, uh, and, you're, and you're probably having these prayers that are like, God, where are you? That I'll just give you a better prayer. That's a really unhelpful prayer. You're going to feel like that's the right prayer. It's not the right prayer. He's there. Okay, I'll just give it away. Jesus is still there. This church is like, you know, experiencing prison and, and like nothing is going well and they're just supposed to be faithful until they die. Jesus, where are you? He's walking amongst the church. That's not the right prayer. The prayer is, Jesus, put an end to this era. Okay, in that case, the Smyrna church, 10 days. And you can be like, if it's going to be 10 days, make sure that they're literally 10 days. 10 days. Or 10 minutes. Or 10 seconds. Just draw a line. Uh, the Bible talks about cutting time short. Like, uh, cutting the time short. Uh, and so, like, God, draw a line and put an end to this. Don't ask him where he is. Like, I'm right here. Where are you? I'm right here. Where are you? I'm right here. Ask him something helpful. Put an end to this. Intervene in my situation. Help me, Okay. Just because you're suffering or you're in an, an era or in a church environment where there's suffering taking place doesn't mean Jesus is there, isn't there. He is there. He is there. So be faithful and keep going even if you die. Keep going. Be faithful to the very end. Eternal life is coming. You'll never be harmed by the second death, which is the lake of fire described in Revelation chapter 20. Keep going. Be faithful. If you find yourself in a horrific time of your life, Jesus is there. Keep going. Be faithful. Smyrna, the question, the question for the Smyrna church and people like, as, as we're evaluating is, how is your commitment to Jesus through every test and every affliction? Are you determined to be faithful no matter what? Are you in this for better or for worse? Whether you're rich or whether you're poor, whether you're sickly or healthy, as long as you live and beyond. That's the call of Jesus to his people, to be committed. Listen to the voice of 
Jesus and be committed, faithful. The last one is Pergamum. The last church we're going to look at this week is Pergamum. And here is what we read about this church. Uh, Verse 12, write to the angel of the church in Pergamum. The one who has the sharp, double-edged sword says, you're going going to want to listen to this one, right? The one who has the sharp, double-edged sword says, I know where you live, where Satan's throne is, and you are holding on to my name and did not deny your faith in me even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan lives. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to place a stumbling block in front of the Israelites, to eat meat, sacrifice idols, and to commit sexual immorality. In the same way, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. Otherwise, I will come to you quickly and fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Just to be clear, the sword, the big giant Jesus sword is coming against his own people. The church who are living, we'll get there, a super fun idea. Anyone who has an ear should listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. I will give the victor some of the hidden manna. I will also give him a white stone, and on the, new, on the stone a new name is inscribed that no one knows except the one who receives him. Okay, so Revelation 1, Jesus, giant, a l- little bit larger than a claymore sword coming out of his mouth. That's the Revelation 1, Jesus. So, <clears throat> We don't want to miss this. The great thing about this church, uh, the Pergamum church, is that it has stood strong against intense personal pressure against it to the point where even someone was killed. Antipas was, was murdered. And, and so th- there has been incredible external pressure, and that church has stood strong. But they've not stood strong in sexual purity. And Jesus is upset. I happened to be reading Numbers this week. Uh, I was reading the story of Balaam before, uh, before looking at this passage. And what struck me was is that Balaam knew that if, if, if Moab were to attack Israel direct on, that God would rescue them and save them. He knew that a direct assault, kind of like the, per, the people of the city of Pergamum, that a direct assault against the church wasn't going wasn't gonna to be effective. Because they're strong that way. And so instead, apparently Balaam uh, suggests they, they get them to, to turn away from living holy lives. To, to turn towards sexual immorality and, and, and idol worship. And, and he understood that if you want to remove the favor of God from people... If you want to remove the protection of God from people, even strong believers, if you want to remove the, in, the effectiveness and the might of a church, you corrupt them by tempting them into sexual immorality, having sex with people they're not married to, and, and as far as some of them goes, the, holding on to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Now, it doesn't say what the teaching of the Nicolaitans is, but I'm, I'm pretty confident it's basically something along the idea of <clears throat> separating behavior and soul. Meaning that it, if your soul is connected to God, 
It doesn't matter what you do with your body. You can go worship demons with it. You can go eat food sacrificed to idols. You can, uh, you can be sexually immoral and out of control. It doesn't matter what you do with your body. How you live doesn't matter. It doesn't impact your relationship with God. All that matters is your soul's connection to God. Now, that is very different than what the Bible teaches. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. All that you are. We're called to love God. And, and yet, there's, this, there's, there's been this teaching throughout the ages that it doesn't matter, you know, and maybe sometimes it's crouched by grace. Okay, I'm just, it just, it doesn't matter if you live uh, just impure and, and, and sexual, I mean, it's kind of, you know, lots of people do it, so, you know, whatever. Um, it matters. It matters, and Jesus is walking amongst his church, and he's seeing sexual immorality there, and, and just like what happens in Numbers. Do you remember what happens in Numbers? Moab does not attack and fight against Israel. Instead, Israel becomes corrupt, and they turn away, and they, they get into sexual immorality with the people of Moab, and as a result, God fights against Israel. 24,000 die. And that's basically what, what Jesus is saying here. I, unless you repent, yeah, great, the, the, the external pressures from the Pergamonians, I don't know what to call them, the Pergolonians, I don't know, Pergasus, Perg, the Purgatory, I don't know. So the, the external pressures that, that you're feeling and you're facing, you might be able to stand against them, but you can't stand against Jesus if you stop walking in the ways of Jesus. He's not okay with us living however we want to live to blend into the city with our external behavior, with sexual immorality, with, with just doing whatever else we're seeing in the city. He's called us to be a holy people, a set-apart people, a godly people. And you may be able to stand against violent persecution, but Jesus is going to fight against you if you're, not, if you're not also committed to personal, practical purity and holiness. Pergamum. How is your priority of purity and your practice of living holy in an unholy city? How is your priority of purity and your practice of living holy in an unholy city? And I understand there's grace and I understand there's mercy and that's why Jesus calls the church to repent. He doesn't just say, oops. He calls them out. He challenges them out. He says, I got this sword coming and yet repent repent and it'll be okay because there's grace there's forgiveness repent listen to what the spirit says to the churches every church has its own unique strengths and challenges every generation has different strengths and challenges in, in god's people every church has its own blind spots and, and really unintentional ways that it, it finds itself compromising and, and be, being deceived by the enemy, becoming weak in one way or another. Every church struggles in this world. Every church has to be intentional. And a church isn't just a church. A church is made up of people, individuals, that are gathering together to spur one another on towards love and good deeds. What does every church need to do to make it? No matter the generation, no matter what kind of church it is. This is what every church needs to do to make it. Every church needs to learn how to hear the voice of Jesus. 
That is, Jesus is here amongst his church. He's sending them letters. Every church needs to learn how to hear the voice of Jesus, the one who knows, the one who walks among. The, the, the church needs to learn how to hear the voice of Jesus and have the humility to receive the praise and the humility to receive the correction. There are things that our church does great and there's things that Jesus would like to correct. And let's have the humility to listen, to hear, respond, and walk in Jesus' way. We'll continue with the next four churches next week, if the Lord wills. Uh, in, the, in the meantime, challenge for this week. Uh, the challenge is this. What is Jesus speaking to you about today? And basically, if you're feeling some conviction about some stuff, okay, great. Repent, respond to that conviction. Uh, respond by, by changing and, and returning back to Jesus' way. I hope that if you're feeling conviction, you're also feeling encouragement because not everything in there was, uh, yeah, there, there is encouragement to be found there. But I'll just ask the four questions again. And, you, and, and I'll, I'm going to pray for you in a moment and think about which one of these four questions is Jesus speaking about? One of these four questions. Your love for Jesus. Is, is your love for Jesus, uh, has it gone cold right now? Or is it doing good? Secondly, your love for people. Is that doing good? Is that, is that gone down a little bit these days? Your commitment to Jesus, no matter the suffering. How's your commitment level? Is that, is that strong or is that going down these days? How about your purity or lifestyle compromises? Are you, are you doing good in that area or has that gone down in a little bit? Just pick one and be like, God, Jesus, help me grow in this 